Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This is a, a special episode. It is a big episode. It is our episode about comedy and the, the presidency of Donald Trump. Though, in a way, this whole podcast, which I started after and a little bit because of his election, has been just that. All comedy made during this period is some reflection of dealing with the America he fostered. Um, regardless if the comedy is political or if the comedy is intentionally not political, you cannot divorce it from this administration. But Joe Biden's inauguration is happening this week, and I want to just sort of start trying to reckon with all of this. You know, with this episode, more than anything, I wanted to share multiple perspectives. I, I feel like so often when we talk about political comedy or comedy under Trump and is is Trump good for comedy or bad for comedy, the person focuses on one thing. They'll be like, you know, I don't like this late night host and that shows why Trump is bad. Or, you know, I don't like Alec Baldwin's impression and that means it's bad. And I, I think comedy is just so much more varied than that. The perspectives that comedy can take is just so different. And, and I felt like I wanted to try to find as many different stories as I could that really captures what this was like for the people who were actually making the comedy. We have a great lineup. Uh, I love this lineup. We, we have so many really smart, talented, and just sort of different people. Though I should note, all of the conversations were held before the attempted insurrection at the Capitol which will be clear by the fact that we're not constantly talking about that thing that obviously we'd be talking about if it happened afterwards. Um, we have Sarah Cooper, who over the last year exploded on social media with her lip syncs of Donald Trump's speeches. Anthony Tamanek, one of the more prominent Trump impressionists. Uh, after that, there is Roy Wood Jr., who has been doing comedy under multiple presidents. And then Io Debris, who's only been doing it under this one. But first, Jenny Hagel, writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers and head writer of Peacock's The Amber Ruffin Show. So here is Jenny Hagel. Thank you, Jenny, for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So so the first question I'm, I'm asking everybody, and I take it however you want to, which is, was Trump good for comedy? Why or why not? And, and what does good for comedy mean to you? That's a great question. I feel like people have asked that a lot. But I think it's it's funny that you started by saying, take it however I want. Because I, I, I think different people mean different things when they ask it. Yeah. I, I, I think because I'm inside of making comedy, it's hard for me to know from the outside if it was good for the comedy that was produced. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is like he wasn't good for the experience of making comedy. <laughs> sure. Because I, I think so much of comedy is exaggerating, is based on exaggeration as a comedic device, especially when you're writing about the news. So much of late night writing is looking at what happened in the news and then thinking, okay, how do I exaggerate this for comedic effect? But Trump is very hard to exaggerate because he's at an 11 all the time. Mm -hmm. The thing he does that you read about in the news is already the joke thing you would make up about an incompetent president or a racist person or what he's already, it's already so beyond what you could imagine that I often had the experience of reading a headline about him and being like, I don't know how to make comedy about this. And then also there was also the experience of some of the things that he did were just so horrifying that it also Mm -hmm. felt like I don't know how to make, I don't know what the comedic end to this is. So that I think wasn't good. But I also just think he's objectively not good for humans. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. So I also feel, I think I also feel when I hear that question, and you're perfectly right to ask it, but I think when I hear that question, I also just think it's the wrong question because I feel like saying that Trump was good for, Trump was so objectively bad for America and for human beings that mm-hmm. that, that saying he was good for comedy is like if you had a house fire <laughs> And all your stuff burned, and you were like, well, it was good for decluttering. Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess it was, but that's, like, not <laughs> the right question to yeah, be yeah. asking. And and was it worth getting there that way? Like, mm-hmm. even if I wrote the best joke in the history of jokes because of Trump, I would rather not have had Trump. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, no, it just, yeah, he, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like it wasn't, somebody, I talked to somebody who was like, will you miss writing about him? And I was like, are you crazy? No, no, absolutely not. No, I'll be thrilled. Yeah. To back up, do you remember the first Trump joke you wrote or what was the first Trump joke you remember writing or the first time you remember having to write a joke about him? So I don't remember the first Trump joke I wrote, but I do remember very clearly. In a way, I think I will always talk about the way my mom talks about hearing that Kennedy was shot. I feel like I remember the day I came into work after he was elected and trying to write monologue jokes that day. Writing jokes about him was suddenly a very different exercise. And I remember just like staring at the computer screen and like I work on the monologue team at Late Night with Seth Meyers. And so the way a lot of monologue writing works, at least at our show, is you get what we call setups. You know how like a monologue joke is two sentences and the mm-hmm. first sentence is true, is like a factual thing from the news and the second <laughs> sentence is the punchline. And so we would have the a writer's assistant would send us setups every couple hours and looking at the first set of setups was insane. It was like <laughs> Donald Trump was elected president. Donald Trump was elected president yesterday. Donald Trump won the presidency by X number of electoral votes. And then looking at that and trying to turn that into a joke felt crazy. Yeah. And I remember I just would stare. We had three pages of jokes due at what time that day? Like 1.30 or so, 1 o'clock that day. And I think I turned in like seven jokes. <laughs> I couldn't even hit the target because yeah, yeah. I just didn't know how to turn that into jokes. And um, I remember... That entire week, I didn't get a joke on because it was like I I just had these shocked feelings and I couldn't Mm -hmm. make them into jokes. So I just turned in like dud after dud after dud. And finally, that Friday, 
I got one joke in the monologue and it was about a monkey who had a boob job. Like it wasn't even about the closest I could get was a writing a joke that had nothing to do with him. But um, our head writer, Alex Bays, wrote my favorite joke of that week that I feel like I will always remember. And it was, he did, the joke just literally said, um, Donald Trump was elected president this week. Blah, 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 something, something, punchline. <laughs> he literally wrote out, he wrote something, or he wrote yeah. something like, and then I don't know, blah, 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 something, something, punchline. Because it was like, I, yeah, I feel like none of us knew what to do with this. I just remember eating a lot of snacks mm-hmm. and staring at the computer screen for like a week trying to yeah. process it. You know, as I was there, I think is the exactly one week after when I, I spent a day there. And it was a, still a feeling of how are we going to do this for more than another two days of this. This was before he started becoming president. It was just sort of like how... So I guess to that, since I, I, I've not seen you much in the in the four years since, what was it like going in every day to work in the Trump joke minds and feeling like, okay, I know half the setups are going to be whatever he did? I mean, look, at the end of the day, comedy is comedy and comedy is jokes. And so I, I don't want to like... I don't want to do that thing where people are like, comedians are the truth tellers. Like, I don't want to like... Like the, the important yeah, people yeah. of the last four years have been the activists who have tried to stop what he's doing and the politicians who've gotten, who've tried to get like some kind of decent legislation through and people who've been, you know, fighting voter suppression. So I don't want it to be like, look, we did a lot of important work. But I feel like it did make me think in the tiny little corner of the universe that I'm in, before Trump was elected, I thought like, this guy's harmless and who cares? And I'm going to write yeah. a bunch of dumb jokes about his hair. And then after it made me think, okay, if someone is going to hear this joke, like, what do I want people to think about him? How do I want to frame him for the two seconds that I have their attention with a joke? Mm-hmm. It, it made me think more of like, do I want to talk about him like he's a harmless buffoon? Because I don't think he is. And it made me approach news about him differently, even if it was crazy, even if it was like, oh, his dentures fell out during that speech. Like, <laughs> okay, but like, I kind of made me want to keep my eye on the ball a little more of like, okay, but what is the real takeaway about him today? And And I tried to like always do a gut check if I was reading a headline about him of like, Okay, how does this news make me feel? Mm. Because that's the way in to the joke. Because if I'm feeling this way about certain news, somebody else is feeling that way. I want to know sort of what you learned, part of just what do you learn generally? What do you learn about what you want from the comedy you create? And sort of, and then if you can, then sort of talk about how that transitioned to what you wanted to do uh, with the Amber Ruffin show. Um, yeah, I feel like what I learned, that's a great question. A couple of the things I learned, I mean, one of them really was like, the best stuff is going to come from your honest reaction to the news. And there is that kind of like, that kind of that writing adage that the specific Mm -hmm. is universal. And you never think it's going to be true, no matter how many times you hear it, no matter how many times you sit down to write, you think, oh, I need to write a general broad thing that everybody can relate to. And then anytime you write some very specific thing about like a thing your mom said or a detail about your hometown, mm-hmm. everybody you know is like, yeah, I yes, me too. <laughs> like somehow the more specific you get, the more it connects with people. And so I feel like I found that over and over again at late night. I would write these things that I thought like, oh, this will appeal to everybody. And they would either not get chosen or they'd get chosen and do fine. And then every once in a while, I'd write some weirdo thing from my very specific weirdo point of view, and that would do much better. Mm -hmm. And so I think after having that experience over and over again, it was so nice then to go to Amber's show. And she's already in such a specific place compared to the rest of the late night landscape, right? Like she's a woman, she's black, she's so, so like she's, um, you know, she grew up in Omaha. She's not from like a, you know, a a big city on the coast. She has like a lot of very, she's like one of five children. I don't know many people who are one of five children. She has a lot of very specific points of view. 
she used to be a gymnastics coach. I don't know if you know that, but she like knows a ton of very specific things about gymnastics scoring. Um, so I feel like it's, it's, I think it was like such a delight to just like give into that yeah, and be like, oh, when I pitch things to her or write things for her, I'm just going to write very specific yeah. things about her or things that are very specific to me that I care about and see if it connects with her. And it felt lovely to give in to the specific and not worry at all about mm. this is a general thing that will that will connect with like the mass of America. Because the mass of America is probably not going to watch the show because nobody yeah. knows how to find Peacock. <laughs> Jesse? <laughs> uh, no comment. But you know what I mean? Like I just mean that like it's – um. Yeah, you're not going to reach a general, whatever whatever general yes. audience even means. You're not going to reach a general audience. So it just felt like really lovely to be like, let's just write the most specific weird stuff that mm. really honestly tickles us. And that, again, over and over, the same thing. I feel like it's like how many times you have to learn the same lesson over and over again. The pieces that connected the most, the couple pieces that went viral were all incredibly specific. Yeah. Um, excluding things you worked on, was there any specific comedy things that uh, about Trump that you thought really worked that you saw? And if so, why? I mean, my favorite moment of the four years in terms of responding to Trump was the end of Michelle Wolf's White House Correspondence Dinner, where after she made all of her, I thought, great and sharp jokes, she just ended by telling the room full of reporters, I don't think any of you hate him because you've used him all to sell your books and your magazines and your television yeah. shows. So I don't know if that was comedy, but I felt like it was a very great and honest response. And I think, I think the Trump era came at everybody so fast and hard that and I'm really, I'm really like jinxing us all by talking yeah. about it in the past tense when it's not even in the past yet. But no, I think. Well, don't tr- worry. If, if something bad happens, we'll edit out you so confidently assuming it's over. <laughs> like a dummy. No, I think that like it, it has come at all of us so fast and hard that I think it's made it hard to. And there's always a, such a barrage of new news, like this like fire hose of headlines all the time, mm-hmm. that it's made it hard to like stop and get any perspective sometimes, I think. And I thought that was such a lovely, that moment really righted the ship, I think, in my head, where I was like, it allowed me to kind of, like, I think when I heard it, I could feel myself pulling back and getting a wider angle view on what was happening. And I feel like it did that for a lot of people. And I I don't think that any of everybody, everybody who heard that was open to hearing it, but I thought it was a really interesting moment. And I feel like, to, to get back to your earlier question about how do you how do you balance serious messages with jokes, I often think of comedy pieces as like, um... I kind of think of it like a game where like like a card game where you earn poker chips. I often think of com- when you're trying to do a serious piece of comedy, every joke you tell that that lands earns you a couple of chips. Mm, yeah, and yeah. if you want to say something serious, you have to earn a few chips. And then when you say a serious thing that has no punchline, you spend a couple. And so it's almost like you have to have this balance of like, okay, now I'm going to earn a few back. And now I'm going to spend them to make this point mm-hmm. I want to make. And I feel like it was such a beautiful example of like, I just imagine like someone at a table with like a mountain of poker chips and then you just spend them all on that beautiful moment that doesn't have a punchline but needed to be said. So yeah, I think that's probably my favorite yeah. moment. What, what does political late night comedy look like without him? I mean, uh, uh, be- better just because we all are in a better place. <laughs> like we are all emotionally healthy, hopefully. And like, yeah, yeah I just think, I mean, I don't know. I think... Whatever it looked like before. You know, political and late night comedy has been around forever. It was around way before him. God willing, there will be an after him and it will be around after him. I think it, it's always going to reflect where we're at as people. So I think like, man, what a luxury to be able to write jokes about like 
Remember when we cared what the president like? Like, remember when Obama wore a tan suit and we dined out on that for a week? What a privilege. So yeah, I hope. I mean, again, I think it's kind of like the whole house burning down thing. Like, I hope it looks good, but honestly, I just hope we're all okay. Yeah. yeah. Late Night with Seth Meyers airs nightly on NBC. The Amber Ruffin Show airs Fridays on Peacock. Follow Jenny on social media at Jenny Hagel. In the spring of 2020, Sarah Cooper was just another stand-up comedian stuck inside because of the pandemic. And after listening to Donald Trump's excuses and misinformation day in and day out, she had an idea to just lip-sync them on TikTok. It's still sort of unbelievable how much she blew up from this, to a point where she now has over 650,000 followers on TikTok, over 800,000 followers on Instagram, and over 2.4 million followers on Twitter. By the summer, she got a gig speaking at the Democratic National Convention, and by this fall, her own Netflix special, Everything's Fine. So I am here with Sarah Cooper. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Uh, was Trump good for comedy? Why or why not? A- and what does good mean? <laughs> Such an easy question. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I've thought about this, and I've come to the answer. So if you like me, you would say yes. Uh, if you hate me, then you'd, you'd say no. Sure. Um, I would say no for the obvious reason of uh, comedy sometimes is about heightening and exaggeration and he heightened and exaggerated beyond a point that would make sense for any normal thinking human being. Mm-hmm. So that was bad for comedy and that someone like Alec Baldwin, who's very talented, just, it didn't even seem crazy enough, yeah, his yeah, impersonation. Yeah. It, it didn't even match the level of crazy that we were dealing with. Um, I think because he sort of took that away from us. Yeah. We now have to innovate Mm. in a way that we wouldn't have had to before, um, which is to say, you can't just heighten slightly or exaggerate slightly. You you can't just do A to B to C. You got to do A to something else that you haven't even thought of yet, because that's the only thing that's going to keep people interested, I think, in the next, you know, millennia of comedy. Um, So, yeah, that would be my response. You know, comedians only have so much control over how their work is received. You know, you, you do a thing and then the audience somewhat reveals what works. So you, you did your first Trump TikTok, uh, I believe, in April, right? Which is crazy that it's so recently. It feels like it's so long ago. Um, yeah. what, what... I know. People are like, you're an overnight success. I'm like, the last six months have felt like 60 years. So, <laughs> um, But so when you, when you first did it, what did you what did you hope it would do? And then sort of after it came out and went viral, what did you find people responded to? And what were they getting out of it? Um, I, I, I'm the type of person that I like to try to do things that other people aren't doing. And so I was really trying to find something different. And so when I was making that video, people had started to make Trump lip sync videos mm-hmm. at that point. So I was just like, this isn't even worth it because I can't stand out and everybody's already doing this. And so when I was making it, I was thinking to myself, why am I doing this? This is, this is ridiculous. But I listened to that clip of him talking about injecting Lysol and I saw the whole thing in my head. And it was one of those things that I was just, I have to do it. 
Like I didn't have a choice. So I really was just like, let me do this. Let me finish it. I had like two hours before my husband was going to be done with dinner. (laughs) I make my husband cook you guys. It's great. Um, (laughs) while I make my TikTok videos. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so when I put it out there, I was like, well, this is funny. I think this is funny. It got started to get some retweets. I posted it at like 8 30 PM on a Thursday night. And I was like, oh, this might go viral. That, that would be cool. And then once it did, what did you learn that people liked about it? Like, what was the thing? As you said, people maybe were sort of doing a little bit, but obviously yours became the sensation. Yeah. What do you think it was? I've watched that video so many times, and there's something really special about it that I'm trying to put my finger on every time I look at it. And it has like 25 million views, and I believe many of those views are people watching it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And there's this replay quality with it, specifically that one, um, because I am so kind of unaware of what I'm doing. I'm kind of just very earnestly like mouthing these words. And so I feel like, um, you know, I just instead of heightening or exaggerating, I just took his exact words, uh, which uh, there's a quality to them, sort of a documentary style quality. And I feel like I love documentaries personally. I love mockumentaries. I love anything that feels sort of like accidental. And that's what it was. It was this sort of accidental clip. And then, and then my actual performance felt very unaware too. And I think it was because I had just started and I didn't really know what I was doing. And so, um, I think that's, that's a lot of it. It's, it's replay quality. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as you've done more of them, what do you think it gets at that a Trump impression where it is a person dressing up with him and doing the voice or not even dressing up, but just doing the voice or, or any part of it. What do you think it gets at that um, those impressions do not? I think it reveals something that those impressions don't reveal. Like the mimicry um, tells you what you already know. Yeah. I think these videos told you something else. And I think that something else was just... Uh, a woman like me speaking like this is so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And you really are listening closer and you're watching closer in a way that by that time, by April of this year, we had sort of tuned out Trump because he was so freaking annoying that we just like didn't even want to deal with him anymore. And so a lot of the feedback I got was, I love that you make no attempt to look like him because I cannot stand to look at him. And so that was another big part of it too. Um, Another part of it was just... uh, news yeah yeah i mean i was i i made that clip that first one within two hours of that news conference and so people saw that some people saw that before they saw the original and so it was kind of a way to Hmm. hear what he said yeah that's interesting that the like to going back to like the when the daily show first started and people were like oh i get your news from there and he's like oh no no we're doing but like it is a it Comedy, of the many things satire can do, can actually just also be like a way for people to get information in a way that's not as threatening. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, I, I realize that, do you consider what you do an impression and impersonation? No, it's more like an interpretation, yeah, yeah. you know, like um, a sign language is sort of <laughs> interpreting yeah, yeah. for people yeah. who can't hear, you know, this is sort of an emotional, uh, emotionally impaired interpretation. Like if mm. you really can't, uh, see past the power and the wealth and the perfectly timed motions of his hands and um and, and you really and and you get sucked in by that a lot of people do the the image of the appearance of in, intellectualism yeah. can it can be very seducing and it can fool people and so i kind of take that away yeah 
Um, you said um, that you either know that he's watched them or you've heard he's watched them. What is what does that mean? What is that as a person who's creating the, these pieces of satire? What does that mean for them? What does it mean for your intention? What does it mean to hear that? How do you how how do you think about that? Well, because he is who he is, which is someone I you know I I feel like has absolutely ruined this country and taken it to a point where you know is so terrible that I feel like being able to take him down in any way, I'm proud of. I'm proud mm-hmm. of that. Um, if it was anyone else, you know, like if I, if it was any just like normal human being or uh, even a, a celebrity, you know, not like the, the president of the United States, I think I wouldn't want them to comment. I wouldn't want them to feel bad. I wouldn't want to be pointing out anything. I don't, I think at this, because it was so political, like I, I'm glad that I was able to um, point out how incompetent he yeah, yeah. was specifically because it was him. And I, I don't think I would feel that way about anything else I've done. Yeah. Um, I guess the first question I would ask is in broadly, as we sort of um, wrap up, um, what do you, what do you ultimately think political comedy does or, or can do? I think political comedy can help us commiserate with each other on what we're all going through. So I can, I think it can be this incredible connective mm. experience um, especially in a pandemic. And I think that's the other thing that was, was cool is that's, you know, we were all so, uh, you know, isolated and, um, a lot of things that were created online really brought us together in this year that we needed it so much. So I feel like that is a big part of it. We can all say, Hey, we're all seeing the same thing, which is the next great thing about it is, um, with Trump, it's just constant gaslighting and for, and to be able to look at something and, and realize, Oh my God, I'm not crazy. We all see this mm-hmm. and it's this, this, you know, our shared reality has not been completely obliterated. Um, and so anything that can kind of like take the mask off and reveal something, I think that's what, that's the most amazing thing comedy can do the laughter and then the revealing. Yeah. Do you think you're done with Trump videos? Yeah, I would like to be, you know, I would like to be done with them. Um, cause there's so many other things I want to do. I've just been like taking notes and writing and doing all of this stuff for six years, 10 years. And, um, yeah, I feel like my, I, I have the opportunity to do something with those things now. So that's what I would like to do in the future. Um, I can't say never though, because you know, he might come, <laughs> he might write something brilliant and I might just be like, well, I have to perform that, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Perfect. That's a great way of ending. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for doing this and for being here. And it is wild. When I realized it was April when you did that first video, I couldn't believe it. I know. It's been <laughs> absolutely just indescribably unexpected. You can watch Everything's Fine on Netflix. Follow Sarah on social media at Sarah CPR. The audience for Anthony Tabnick's Trump impression grew as Trump's legitimacy did. What what started as a, a local bit and then something you could do on the road in, in the form of live debates with James Adomian as Bernie Sanders eventually built to The President Show, a weekly late night show of sorts, which aired 20 episodes on Comedy Central in 2017, plus four additional specials. Soon after, Anthony had enough. He just couldn't stand to do the impersonation anymore. So I, I am here with Anthony Atabnik. Thank you for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. <laughs> so uh, how did your Trump impression start, both in terms of deciding to do it and then deciding what your take on it was going to be? Uh, okay, I'll do the short version. The long and the short is uh, I, I, for years at, you know, at Bright Citizens Brigade, which is an improv sketch theater in New York City, uh, my friend John and I used to do a show called The Tony and Johnny Show, and then John left for California, and uh, I stayed doing the show, and one of the th assignments we always had was we have to do the show in a day and then put it up. And so yeah. I got very used to doing, like picking a character and just doing it and like buckshotting it again. Mm -hmm. I think that's the second time I used that term. Um, but, you know, just trying to go for it whatever. Yeah. So to me, satire didn't live in like a political zone. It lived in like you know, I want to take this character and make fun of this thing, or I want to do a whole Woody Allen episode that's done like a Woody Allen movie, but is all about taking him down for his misogyny in his films, mm -hmm. right? So not everything had to do with like, you know, I wasn't like the capital steps. <laughs> sure. And so, but I always loved politics. And on the side, I sort of had a side gig of doing things like that, but I never really, you know, did it majorly. And I also worked in right-wing media for a little while as a sketch comic on a weird show on The Blaze called The BS of A, yeah, yeah. which had a lot of sweet people on it, a lot of lovely people on it. And I also had to do a lot of political characters on that. So fast forward in August of 2015, Trump had been out for a month or two. I remember, you know, doing an ass cat. Someone said, Mr. President, I thought it'd be funny to walk out as Trump. I did a piss poor Trump impression. At the end of it, my friend Shannon, who was artistic director, mm -hmm. said, hey, you should do you know, one of your shows. You should do it with Trump. And I went, yeah, that's a good idea. So I wrote it in a week. I worked it out. And the take I had is the take I basically stuck with, which was, you know, I see Trump as sort of like a a bog, like a bog body version of Frank Sinatra with a personality to match, who's sort of a bad master of ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and just looked at who he was and went, well, uh, and I think he's also an unrepentant, unapologetic, white supremacist, sexist, rapist, racist. So I will just play him as that. Yeah. And then I will just throw the ball, the stone down the lane and go, well, if he became president, what would probably happen? And so I just took all those things, made that the first show, and the bedrock of that show lasted all the way to the finale of my series in terms of everything I did in that show, I ultimately mined into my series, and all of it, mm -hmm. with the exception of a few things, ended up coming true. And so that was my take on him, uh, was that. Yeah. You mentioned with The President Show how some of the things ended up then coming true, where yeah. you did a thing, and then a year later, what, what, what do you make of that um uh well i guess i could say jungian synchronicity so you could go you could look at it and go i've done a lot of meditation and jungian therapy and read a lot of Jung and all that um so is there the part of it where like this is just a dream too and mm -hmm. you know this is just a form of uh playing out a metaphorical existence that's we view as concrete because it's the consistent world, not the inconsistent dream world, but that metaphor and uh, sort of uh, 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 metaphor and inference, uh, ex you know, exist. So if you look at the world that way, then maybe it's easier to sort of say, well, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then this should be the end result. Mm -hmm. And then if you ballpark it, then likely you'll be correct. Um, I think, I just had fortunate synchronicity in the sense that I was able to mine within myself a particular uh, 
personality and arrogance that lives in me yeah. that was so aligned with him that uh, I'll say this. When I decided to do the character, I wanted to make it open source. So I wanted to, in my mind, go, I want to think like him improv improvisationally. I don't want to have to like come up with bits all the time. So I had to... I don't know how to describe what I did, but I had to, every time I do him, I had to try to bake in auto subroutines of what he would do and how he would think. So when I would do Trump, I would just turn that mind on and then that mind would just make conclusions like an AI. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I just built a really good AI. Yeah. I, w I, want, I wanted to ask you about one particular moment on the show that I, I, I think of when I look back of the last four years as a sort of high mark of Trump impersonating, um, which is, and really something that revealed something about him that I feel like had not really been said or, or conveyed, which is the moment I think it might even be in your first episode where you're on the street as Trump and I believe a truck passes by and then you sort of like react to seeing a truck truck right. and then you sort the of like video, descend yeah. into sort of a, a stream of consciousness riff of sort of into his psyche and it just sort of gets really dark. Um, a truck. Oh boy, oh boy. Oh boy, oh boy. There we go. Yeah, Hong Kong. Hong Kong goes the truck. Hong Kong goes the truck. Hong Kong goes the truck. Did you guys see? The truck goes Hong Kong. Did you see that? Did you see it? Unbelievable. It's so crazy. And you see how it moved? Big trucks, big wheel. And the big wheels go around. And then when you pull on the horn, the horn goes crazy. And the truck's so unbelievable because it's a tremendous truck. I wish we had a bigger truck. Wouldn't it be great if a big truck came? Like a big truck, a big 18-wheeler truck, and they're all down. And then a guy showed up, and he was a macho guy. And he says to me, you drive the truck. And then I get to drive the truck, and I get to go all the way down, and I drive it right into the river. And then I drown in the river, and I feel the water seeping over me. And then the air leaves my lungs. And in the moment where my body starts to react and wants air, I let go. And when I let go, the water fills my lungs and I'm finally at peace. And only then do I find the complete and absolute solitude that I've wanted. Anyway, I want to go home, Bridget, entirely. What happened there for you? What, what do you think it got at? That was the first thing we shot before we even had finished building the set. Yeah. So we were doing field pieces. Uh, so this is my first time, you know, it's interesting. There was a lot of fear around that shoot because this is the first time I'm doing it. The, we, the, they have the show. You're hoping Comedy Central likes what you're doing. You hope the executives like it uh, because then it keeps on the air, which it did for a little while. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that there was a little bit of like getting my sea legs. Like I always watch that clip now and I'm like, oh, the voice was so high. I was doing the voice so high, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think if anything, what went through my mind was uh, I was actually telling a dream or a recurring dream I have about yeah. uh, drowning in a pool uh, and then breathing underwater and realizing that I can breathe underwater and then succumbing to the water and then I would wake up. So I was just telling a dream that I had. Um, but I, I thought, oh, when Trump says it, that's going to be so funny because 
like to reveal that he has this sort of like human thing about giving up and succumbing. But then also I was like, that is, I think ultimately that is who he is, that there's a part of him that's like, I'm so tired and I can't wait for death to take me. I actually believe that's true. I believe that there's a burden to existence. And so the burden, his revenge on existence is controlling it. And I would say that I think that way some way. So, but (laughs) I think it's identifying so much, not with him, but empathizing with the experience. Um, And so uh, that's all that was. And so what happened was when the truck honked, I, the producer in me, that's what lit up. I went, yeah. Ooh, Ooh, let's get this. And then the fact that they honked the horn, I was like, Holy shit. So what you're seeing is me actually excited that we got the clip while we're doing it, but just knowing I have to do Trump in order yeah. to keep, not break the thing. And then the monologue was like, well, what, you know, what am I going to do? I truly was like, I'll just do this and maybe we'll get like a piece of a clip out of this. That's how yeah. I was thinking about it. Um, and then probably that was the last and closest time to stage like basement black box theater Trump. That would be the closest to that that you get in the show. And then it refines itself, of course, yeah, yeah. across the rest of the show. So um, eventually, besides the show ending, I, I, I've heard you talk about just not wanting to do the impression anymore. Right. Can you talk yeah. about um, how it felt to live in that space as long you did and then sort of leading to you deciding you have to stop? Uh, well, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, sometimes it would get tiring, but mostly because of the fat suit and stuff like that, or the voice, which is, you know, a burden to do just on your throat. Yeah. Um, even when I started doing it, I was like, I only want to do this just until hopefully until he loses. And then when he won, I said, I'll make the deal that I'll do it until he leaves office. Right. And I think that's partly because like, I always saw Trump as such a bargain basement impression to begin with. Everybody fucking does a Trump. It's like doing a Shatner or an Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not like some great accomplishment to, you know, do it. And so my thing was like it's my take. So to me, it was the burden I had to make my work. Yeah. So I had to just that was my deal. So I guess my thing was sort of twofold. I don't want to get stuck fucking doing him for the rest of my life. That's an awful uh, three things. Two, the, I, it's not a psychological burden to do him because in a way I'm actually processing elements of myself that I feel it's good to let them have yeah, their yeah. time and their process. But then I've worked through them so it's easier to like not do them now. And then I think the third one is that it runs out of steam. Listen, I like that character. I like my Trump, which I don't think is Donald Trump. It's so funny when people go, oh, it's so accurate. I'm always surprised when someone says, oh, it's so accurate, because I'm like, oh, it's not about accuracy to me. It was about an impression. It was about my artistic interpretation of this pig, and how do I take fascism and white supremacy in America, and how do I uh, present them, and how do I present the hypocrisy of the media and the democratic party. And how do I present all of the lies that we tell to like, keep ourselves insulated about the greater crisis in this country? Um, I, I, that was what I saw. And so once he became a, 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 not a useful tool anymore, I didn't want to like perform him or like do a TV show around him. Would I do his voice like on a podcast from time to time? Sure. I don't care. I mean, I will do that character if it suits something valuable but i think everyone will get tired of him and i think that there's a way for me to do that type of character if i really want to do them in a different way so it's like what do i have to do but yeah Yeah. i don't know i don't want to fucking do that for the rest of my life 
It's awful. <laughs> to wrap it up, ultimately, <laughs> you know, it's good. What What do you think, be it what you've learned over the last four years, or, or in general, what do you believe comedy satire can do, should do? I think that um, comedy should be comedy, and there's all kinds of comedy. Yeah. So just like there can be funny, dumb comedy. I mean, listen, Holiday on Netflix, which is that, you know, uh, bad holiday yeah. movie with the Emma Roberts. Yeah. Uh, that's awful garbage. I loved it. I loved it. It was just awful shit, and it was garbage, and I loved it. And, you know, and that was great. And and then, uh, you know, I love Toast with Matt Berry, and I love What We Do in the Shadows, which I'm in. Um, you know, I love all that stuff. Silly for being silly, funny for being funny. Um, so the future of comedy should be that, right? And then I think the future of political satire and satirical comedy would be uh, what I hope it is, is I hope that it's an audience that seeks more than just the big network's dispensation of the most bargain basement uh, propaganda done through the plight of this rich personality who just can't take what's happening. And it's so gross and stupid and it's not satire. It is just simply a rich person who's getting hyper-emotional like they're at the last day of theater camp talking about how they just can't take what's happening anymore. And to anyone who's making $12 an hour trying to risk COVID every day, trying to deliver food to that asshole, uh, of which there are many... Um, they don't give a fuck about your millionaire ass nearly weeping because you're worried Trump's going to stay president. So what I would love is to see a wider birth and, oh, and I'd like to see media companies and streaming companies, even though they should pay their actors properly. Um, I would love to see them actually expand, um, expand the, 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 the playing field yeah. and not be afraid. I mean, the number one thing you hear from executives is, we don't want political. We don't want this, right? And I think that's, you know, I get it. It's tiresome to people, and I don't think it can be everything. But for that space, open it up to, you know what? Where's the people of color? Where's the black satirical political show? Where's uh, the, the, the lead, all women? Where's the trans uh, comedy show? Where is that happening? You know, I'll produce that. I won't even be in it. I don't even fucking care. I'm just astonished that we are still living in the world, and I am one of them, of boring white men constantly getting to run shows and share their narrow view of political struggle in this country. So that's what I would like to see for comedy and satire is to expand the field and, and, and allow so many people who are out there to, to be able to have the opportunity to do what seems to come so easily to a lot of boring, spindly white men in their 20s who are a waste of fucking space and haven't had an original <laughs> idea in a century. Does that, does that make sense? You see how I'm not concerned yeah. about working anymore? Yeah, I see that. Um, I think that's a great way to end. Thank you, yeah. thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Jesse, thank you very much. You can listen to Anthony's podcast, Coffee with Tony, wherever you listen to podcasts or watch it live on Twitch at 1230 Eastern at twitch.com slash shaddy fatty. Follow Anthony on social media at Tony and Tabinick. We'll be right back with more good one. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. 
Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. You know, there, there's a reason I always have Roy Wood Jr. on the show to talk about anything. He is the best at it. He is the best at talking about comedy and what it's like to do it. There is. And I sort of love it. And anytime I have a chance to have an expert, he is the expert. So considering Roy, who who has been a Daily Show correspondent since 2015, started doing stand-up when Bill Clinton was in office, I thought he would have the best perspective on what actually made Trump different. Uh, I am here with Roy Wood Jr. Thank you so much. Hello. Uh, was Trump good for comedy? Why or why not? And and what does good even mean? The broad answer, yes, Trump was good for comedy. Uh, the best comedy for me, my comedy flavor preference is comedy of opinion, comedy of perspective. And I feel like Trump had a great way of polarizing people to the point that as a comic, you could take a radical stance on something and really get deep into an issue if you wanted to. You know, you didn't have to, but if you wanted to, you could. Of course, it creates confrontations and hecklers at shows and people who don't want you to talk about this particular thing. But if you're a comic that that likes to live on the edge or you like your comedy with a little bit of spice, you know, Trump was some motherfucking habanero mm -hmm. fucking ghost pepper to a lot of premises. So yeah. you can get some jokes with a little bit of spice. So in that regard, I think it was great for opinions it, because the best comedy is derived from strong opinions and strong perspectives or attacking those who are entrenched in their opinions and perspectives. And, in that regard, I think, you know, Trump created an atmosphere where you could have, you know, comedy with a little more teeth and opinion and perspective to the point where I feel like specificity becomes the new broad, you know. So I think in the bigger scheme, I think that's that was good for comedy is was it sustainable? Is that sustainable? 
I don't think so, because I think we've probably at this point sliced that pie every which possible way Mm -hmm. that you can think of. You know, if you start with SNL, you know, having Leslie Jones as Trump, you know, I did that black Trump um, rap video, which was before he even won. That was still what he's running. God damn, that was still GOP primaries. When we did that video, Trump wasn't even the nominee for the Republican Party yet, let alone the president. So, you know, you've seen the evolution of it, you know, hell, when when fucking Jimmy Fallon's making Trump jokes, that's when, you know, the tide has turned. Yeah. You know, everybody jump on in. The water's fine. You know, it's interesting. I I think the point you made is is one I have not heard, but is an interesting one, which is because he is. His stance on issues are sort of removed of sort of the normal political language and are sort of like the most aggressive take on whatever it is. It's not like his take on immigrants is some sort of like nuanced and counter all that thing. He's just saying like, we don't like immigrants. Not even saying we don't like immigrants. Like We don't want Mexicans coming in there, these people. And you're, you're saying that that resulted in comedy that also did not have to beat around the bush in terms of like what ultimately we're talking about. We're talking about big picture issues instead of like trying to just respond to small policy plans. Correct. And even within that, I don't think you get something. There's a lot of comedy that is reactive or is representative of the times in which we live. Mm hmm. And, you know, under Trump, there are a lot of people angry. There are a lot of people that were, you know, frustrated. You know, there are a lot of people that were, you know, looking inward to themselves, you know, to a greater degree in terms of the type of comedian that they wanted to be. And I think that that helped to motivate the style of even comedy specials that we saw, the tone of them. Yes, I think so. I want to talk a little bit more of that point, because I think when people um, think about Trump's impact on comedy, they focus on jokes about Trump. They often focus on like monologue jokes about Trump or whatever. But like, I think what you're saying is correct, which is it seemed like a lot of comedians after he won, even if they're not going to do Trump material for whatever reason, because, you know, everyone's doing it because he he's doing a new bad thing every day. So it's hard to know what to focus on, blah, blah, blah. I think it seemed like a lot of comedians took a beat to be like, what am I doing? If I'm going to do this, if my job for a living is going to be comedy, I should be at least saying something. And even if it's like what I'm saying is I want the audience to have fun, at least you're it's more mission oriented than I feel like they were before. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think even in the comics that weren't necessarily political on stage on a regular you could even see it a little bit in their social media. You know, yeah. Jim Gaffigan's probably a great example. Patton Oswalt. Patton is always kind of, I feel like, oscillated between personal stories and personal perspectives on the world. Mm-hmm. But I think even that needle kind of skewed a little bit more towards analyzing the world because it's hard to, you know, ignore what the hell is happening. I, I, I haven't done the analysis yet, but I also would love to see I would love to see a pie chart of opinionated comedians versus the ones that are that are that are parents, because Mm -hmm. I think raising a child in this world also really gives you a sharper eye 
to what the fuck is going on. Because in your head, you're like, oh, shit, I got to leave my kids mm. in this. This is not. I I gotta do something. I I, I, I gotta say something. I, I do something. Yeah, yeah. And so you get a lot of comedy that you know is reactionary. I think the thing that's going to happen now, I think that once we get, once we settle in under Biden, and if Biden does start changing some things, a lot of the clapter jokes aren't gonna get the love they used to get. Yeah. You know, just standing on stage and saying the shit that's right without a punchline, that's over with. Like, the, yeah, let's get, yeah. That shit was cute for four years, but now <laughs> it's time to put a punchline behind that. And so I think that a lot of, how can I say this politely? <laughs> I have seen in my observation that some comedians have substituted righteousness for a punchline or they mistake. There we go. Yeah. That's a nice way to say it. Some have mistaken righteousness as a punchline. And now righteousness is going to become the premise. So now you have to extend the bit. You have yeah, to extend yeah. the thought. You're going to have to work a little harder to get to that same place. Because, you know, for the next year, we'll get the wasn't Trump crazy. Yeah. And then 2022 is remember when Trump. And then at 2023, it's, look, what the fuck is Biden doing? Now we have yeah, to take yeah, stock yeah. of the last two years. So you can't, for as good as Trump was for creating sharper jokes and more and comedy from a more motivated place, it's going to take something more than that to sustain, yeah. for it to be sustainable under Biden. Because I don't think you can just come out there and go Republican suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, more than any comedian i know you're really deliberate about doing material that that that's not similar to what other people are doing you 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 uh, survey the territory and you want to make sure you're finding new things and it, it felt like regardless of you the thing with trump was it was always hard with that because he was so out on the surface with what he was saying he was doing new things everyone was making jokes about him constantly um, I remember talking to you early in and you, you talked about maybe your strategy was to focus on the people around him. Um, and no, eventually you did have the joke about uh, if you're running against Trump, your campaign would be to build a better wall. Like just, yeah, just one of his atrocities. So how, what was your <laughs> strategy in your standup about jokes about Trump? How did, how did that evolve over the last four years? Um, I left him alone after 2017, you know, father figure was that aired in 2017. I want to say we shot, we shot father figure a month before Trump was elected. So inherently I had to leave him out mm -hmm. for the sake of not knowing there was an original, there was an original run where I was going to put 10 minutes of Trump and Hillary material in and just leave it modular and then in post, keep the bit to make it seem more fresh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which I'm glad I didn't, because by the time I shit aired, it was fucking yeah, it was a month after Trump had been sworn in and he was already wilding out. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a few comedians that did not make that decision. Release <laughs> didn't work out so great for them, in my opinion. But there's 
my my idea has been, and I kind of stole this from Trevor in the Daily Show over the last four years. If you look at the correspondence, if you look at the Daily Show and the correspondent segments, somewhere around 2018, somewhere at the midterms, midterms was probably the dividing line, right? After midterms, Trevor tended to carry Trump. Anything mm-hmm. Trump, about Trump, addressing Trump, analyzing Trump, what did Trump mean? It's Trevor. That's all Trevor. And the correspondence, we all started focusing on the faces of people that are affected by Trump or the people that co-sign mm-hmm. his shit. And that that to me represented far more fertile ground for new topics. And that was just more, you know, I don't know, it was more fun. And that's kind of how Jordan Klepper came back in the mix, um, was just focusing solely on talking to Trump supporters. That's all he's done for the last two years is just go out and get in their face and go, why do you feel like this? Mm-hmm. Whereas myself and some of the other correspondents are, well, here's the ripple effect of this. Isn't it fucked up that this is happening? Uh, anything from racism down to changing the school lunch program and keeping kids fat in poor neighborhoods and food deserts and stuff like that. So for me, it's always been about the bigger picture mm-hmm. than just Trump because Trump comes and goes. People come and go. The issues tend to not change or the issues tend to remain and the solutions to those issues are the things that to me are a little more evergreen, mm-hmm. you know, than Trump. Like I'm not going to do a joke about like, all right, like the, 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 the white kid who killed two protesters drove over from Illinois to Wisconsin and, um, and killed two protesters. The joke isn't in him. And in that incident, the joke is in how emboldened people have gotten in the last four years. Mm-hmm. And then, you start going through all of the news stories and you find examples of emboldened behavior. And then you pick the ones that you have the best punchlines for. And that's the onstage dissertation is here's emboldened behavior. And you show fucking a couple of protests, Karen's with the mask, fucking Popeye's chicken sandwich confrontations. Like, if you go over the last four years, there's a shit ton of examples of emboldened behavior. And that's not all motivated by Trump. That's from an inner frustration of just mm-hmm. wanting one fucking victory. You just want one thing to just, please, just, I need one. I have to win something. I've been losing so much and everyone yeah. feels like they're losing. And so, yeah, yeah. so that became. That's kind of where I would. I, this is the longest answer in the history of podcasts, but that's essentially <laughs> how I would shape something up. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously excluding this year for variety of reasons, but, you know, I, I think of touring comedians as sort of boots on the ground pollsters in a way. They sort of are able to learn what America thinks about issues based on how audiences respond to different jokes and, and different ways of saying jokes. What, what did you learn about America during this time? Oh, I've learned that we are selfish as a people. It's essentially only two ways to vote for yourself or for the betterment of everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's it. And everybody is fuck you, pay me. That's where I think we are now. Because every group is going, well, they got something. 
When am I going to get something? Well, maybe you getting something isn't good for other people getting something. Well, I don't care. It's my turn to get something. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of every time it's time to get something. You tell me it's not my turn to get something. And then you tell me to vote for you. Like in that regard, you can understand why, you know, why black people are like, nah, Biden needs to break down what he's going to do. Yeah. Kamala needs to break down what, you know, like that type of ideology versus dumb motherfucker. If you don't vote for Biden, I guarantee you, you're not going to get shit at all. So which is it going to be? So it's that yeah. is that type of ideology. I just think that, you know, this is the time for self-preservation. This is a time for protecting yourself against chaos and calamity and you know this whole it takes a village shit that shit is out the window bro yeah that's over with do you did you feel like or do you feel like audiences wanted something different from comedians that they had in the past or expected something different or or just sort of the relationship was a bit different like from my perspective it seemed like a lot of people really cared what comedians were saying yeah, I think I think people only want it. I think audiences only want to champion someone who they believe mirrors their beliefs. Hmm. I believe that the audience has because there's so much division, the audience's level of analysis of a countering point of view has been dulled mm. and audiences ability to read sarcasm into posts has been dulled and almost numb to it because so many people were not fucking around when they yeah, said yeah, the same yeah. shit. So comedians, unfortunately have a tendency to sound just like the fuckers, but we're not the fuckers. But if you sound like a fucker now, I don't even want to hear the rest of the joke because that is not what I came here to see. That is not why I'm on your Twitter, Mr. And blah, 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 blah. So I think comedians lost a lot of flexibility. You know, all of the greats that everybody loves to herald. Part of why they were great is because they can make you laugh even when you didn't agree with them. Yeah. And I think we lost that ability. I think the comedian audience relationship that is pretty much gone or you have to niceify it with a smile or some, I'm not saying all, but here's my opinion that might piss you off. Yeah. Yeah. You got to couch it in some, in some fucking sugar eating sugar and honey. And you know, the best comedians never did that. The ones that like to take risks aren't interested in doing that. You know, when we sort of wrap it up, when we, it's you know it's hard to have perspective on the present as if we're we're talking about in the past but you know when we think about this time period um as it's as it, in terms of the history of comedy when we look at this time period what will we think about it what will we think in terms of how it it reflected the the changes in comedy how it it represented culmination of certain things in comedy you know like what what will have what will have defined this time, do you think, when we look back on it? I will make the case 
that Chris Rock's tambourine is probably the best representation of the state of the mindset of a stand-up comedian of the last five years. Like if I like like if you told me, all right, motherfuckers could watch one comedy special mm-hmm. from the last four or five years. Ah, fuck three. If you had to watch three specials, great. Chris Rock, Tambourine, Michael Che Matters, um, and Nanette. I think those are the three because they are you're exp- you're processing the outside world through inner ex inner self exploration. Mm-hmm. The first half of Chris Rock Tambourine is Chris Rock as he know him. Look at the world, look at the world, look at the world. And then for the first time, he's on some, well, let me talk about me for a second. Let me talk about some shit that I've been thinking. And this is before the pandemic. I think the next two years of specials, the good ones at least, the good specials will be ones that will be inward journeys mm. into oneself as it relate their feeling, your anger, your emotion, as it relates to what's happening in the world around us. I honestly think, and I, and I really feel like tambourine just did that the best. It was the perfect balance of the two disciplines of comedy. How do you see the world and how do you see yourself? To me, that's pretty much any, all jokes go in one of those two buckets, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's where it's headed. I think that the comedians who've had a lot of us have been on the bench all of 2020. So you've had a lot of time to sit and explore and really think about yourself and think about the world and think about what that means. And, you know, I just think it's going to be a bunch of on on stage therapy sessions. Low key. That's what these next round of our specials about to be, bro. I fucking, I did an episode of uh, finding your roots mm. with um with Dr. Henry Louis Gates and this motherfucker this motherfucker tracked down the white people who owned my ancestors down to the street address motherfucker I don't even know what to do with that information yet like that's that's some wild shit. like like when you got when you got stuff like that churning in your head and you know the name of your first relative to step foot off the slave ship in Africa, when you know his name, you kind of don't want to talk about Trump no more. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I want to explore this for a second and see how this connects to the greater, you know, realm of things that connect us all. But I really want to, you know, look inside, look inward. I think that's the way I'm headed. You can watch The Daily Show daily on Comedy Central. Follow Roy on social media at Roywood Jr. When Trump got elected, Io Debry was still in college, which means unlike the rest of my guests, she only knows creating comedy under his administration. Nonetheless, she thrived. Ungodly charming, she, she became a beloved fixture of the Brooklyn comedy scene and, and since has made a name for herself as a writer and actor on Dickinson and, and as the new voice of Missy on Big Mouth. I am here with Io Debris. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So the, the question I'm so starting... Formal. So formal. Unbelievably polite. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> disgusting. Thank you for having me. Yes. yes. This is very professional. Mm, this is very professional. There's gotta, this gotta is very safe. Up. Um so the question the question on everyone's lips, specifically <laughs> mine, since I'm asking it to everybody. repeatedly for the format of this specific podcast episode, uh, yes. What was Trump good for comedy? Why or why not? And and what is good even mean? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sort of psychotic questions. <laughs> I'm sure you've been confronted about this. Yeah. Crazy questions. Um, and I'm going to be professional and diplomatic again and sort of go, uh, yes and no. You ready for that? Cool. <laughs> um, and I guess my thoughts on on why or, or why not would be that I think like the, a feeling for me over these past few years has just been like reckoning and something that's been interesting for me as somebody who like I I think my career really like started basically during this presidency. Mm-hmm. And so I think then my, then like as a, a consequence of that, my career was happening during a lot of moments of reckoning in the industry and comedy and in politics and a lot of change in these spaces too. So it's, it's easy to be like, well, it's bad because like, oh, he's so unprecedented and there's no way to make jokes about any of this thing. Oh, he's funnier than you can even yeah, yeah. imagine oh the man's just so funny and honestly sometimes i've watched his stuff and i've been like he is funny like sorry, he, sorry. like <laughs> but i you know i can see why, why people would say that you know that's bad and destructive for comedy and you know also there's certain types of comics who are making jokes about it that don't really feel like people's taste or whatever that, what an mm-hmm. incredible roundabout way to say maybe something, maybe nothing. Um, but, <laughs> I th- but I think that something that's been cool for me is like I, I feel like the comics who I like and, and who in, enjoy, you know, are people who are of marginalized identities, but mm-hmm. we're finding a way to make comedy that they wanted to see. And, yeah. it, and you know, you can't say it exists outside of, Trump and his presidency or whatever, because that's the context we're in, you know, there's no outside, there's no, yeah, not yeah. my president, he's, he's yeah. the president, whatever. Yeah. But like, I think comedy that made ourselves laugh, made ourselves feel good. Yeah, it, it, I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, it, it does seem like there has been, especially of, of a younger generation, just shifts in terms of who is getting stage time and who's getting yes, attention. 100%. And it's, and you, you can be like, well, that's unrelated to Trump. It's like, well, we don't, we, we don't know. All we know right. was like, this wasn't the case. And then he is the president. Now it's the case. And right. that is good. Yeah. There is something maybe connected to about like online presence yeah. in comedians. And I think a lot of comics who were able to get, for lack of a better word, clout <laughs> online because of commenting on things, however, you know, mm-hmm. overtly, like from, you know, your Sarah Coopers to like your Jabukis who will yeah. like just like quote tweet something and eviscerate you with such a sharp political joke yeah. that somehow like also manages to touch on everything that you're experiencing in your real life too. Um, so I think there's different ways of, of thinking about that. But the rise of that, because it's like everybody was so online for a period of time, like you don't want to like 
identify as that now but there was a period of time where you were just like what is he going to tweet next mm, yeah. and you were online and you were then seeing other funny people so i i want to take a step back just to to get the timeline before before we talk about um the comedy you did do yeah. i want to talk about sort of how you got into it so uh where were you in your life in, in june 2015 which was when donald trump announced he was running for president regardless of him running no no for sure well, now then I'm thinking, where was I? Yeah. In June 2015, I was definitely still in college. And I was actually, I think maybe I was like, I was like just finished like studying abroad. Oh, this is horrific, of course. Um, and I was like debating if I should change my my major to to playwriting mm. from 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 teaching, and and I and I just got into into Tish. Yeah, I, I I like just got in. I like had to apply to change my major, and I think I very much like everybody else was like, huh, like <laughs> you know, Mister Home Alone. Like, okay, sure, because um, that's kind of that. I think that like is honestly my generation's association with him mm-hmm. is like TV guy, like. Mr. Yeah. Cameo, like, and and not really understanding like what he means to people, both positively and negatively. I was just like, okay, this guy for yeah. sure. And then it started ramping up, obviously, and it was like, oh, okay, like, oh, we're doing xenophobia now. That's sort of <laughs> that, that's what's happening now. Okay, cool. Um, and then I I remember there was a period where cause I, I'm from. I'm from Boston, um, like, mm-hmm. and my parents are immigrants, but a lot of the people in our neighborhood are, like, working class, like, immigrants and then working class, like, Irish people who have been there for forever. Um, and I remember my dad was like, yeah, I stopped talking to, you know, so-and-so's dad. And I was like, that's weird. And my dad was like, not really, not really. Sort of, <laughs> sort of doing xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking comedy at that time? At that time, I was doing improv with friends from college. Mm-hmm. Um, stream that on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. um, friends from college who were mostly at Tish, and I was kind of like one of the few who mm-hmm. wasn't because I was like, my dad drives an Uber. Like, I don't have money to, to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but as I started doing more improv and throwback UCB, DCM, um, I started meeting black people and specifically like black women who had careers in in this and were able mm-hmm. to make a living um shout out keisha zoller of astronomy club and Monique moses of astronomy club who literally were like yeah you can do this this can be like a job and so um i thought that i was gonna be like maybe teaching during the day and then like doing improv nights mm-hmm. weekends that was kind of like my big dream <laughs> um when you eventually started performing solo like sort of when you're yeah. like i'm gonna be a comedian you know when comedians start out they try different things mm-hmm. um how did your politics or sort of your awareness of politics weave into what you tried or, or didn't try or what you wanted to do or do you landed on trying to do i think i mean like a lot of early comics any at least for my myself a lot of my jokes were just some like related to identity politics somehow because mm-hmm. that's just I think 
you I had to think about like what is my like what is the self what is myself you know yeah. what are the categories <laughs> what I experience and so I think there definitely were a lot of jokes about like being a woman um being black being a black woman um and then the more that I started performing solo and also like meeting people who were doing shows in like in Brooklyn in the alt scenes um you know, meeting Mitra Juhari and Patty Harrison and Kat Cohen and, and, you know, other people in the spaces and seeing like, okay, there's different ways that I can explore these things. I, I think I started to, I at least tried to get away from that or, mm. or, or at least like approach it in a way that felt more authentic and not like, oh, I'm a black woman on stage and you're, and you know my politics, so let me explain them. Here's a joke. Um, even like, I rewatched because I'm addicted to pain of that. My first like Comedy Central, like little mini set. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, like so like I just wanted to like die. (laughs) Like there's just like certain jokes where I'm like, I I don't I don't tell this joke anymore because it feels like it's me trying to like be like, oh, let me address my label before Mm -hmm. before you can get to it in your head. Let me say the joke first before you think of it. I, I, I was thinking about how big a deal it was in sort of my lifetime for the, the Daily Show to sort of, well, the transition to the Jon Stewart Daily Show mm-hmm. um, and how everyone's like, there are these people who are getting their news from the Daily Show. And yeah. I was like, and then Jon Stewart's like, no one's getting their news. And I'm like, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm a teenager. I'm definitely getting my news from the Daily Show. And I, I, I wonder about comedians like yourself who grew up where like that was fact where it's just yes. sort of like comedians telling you the news is like completely normal uh-huh. do you it's hard to live outside yourself because you've only lived your life but do you have a <laughs> sense of how that um influenced your understanding of like what comedy was yeah i mean i, I think first like i a hundred percent was one of those people where i was getting my news from the daily show i a hundred percent was the regular news was boring. That's for my parents. Like, my news is from The Daily Show. I would record it on the DVR and, you know, watch it, like, at night or in the morning. Um, and, yeah, it just it just felt like this thesis statement kind of, like, mm-hmm. was becoming more true, which is, like, the job of the comedian is to not only be the philosopher but the truth teller and you as a comedian have power politically there's like specific photo shoots that come to mind yeah you know john stewart with like his hand on a globe and like tina fey and amy poehler like all like writing on a map yeah. you know? yes. and you're like this is the comedian's job like you know you are called to to tell the truth and to mm-hmm. to you know be powerful and and all of that and and I think that, that there is a part of it that is true and a little bit odd I think but then also it's like a part of the job is also being like stupid yeah you know it's like getting to be like dumb a huge part of my like growing up both as myself and as a comedian like that was the feeling yeah I think not just like the comedians whose job it was to write jokes every day about Trump, like the people mm-hmm. who worked at late night shows. Yeah, I um, worked on a late night show. Which you did, right? Yes. Your first job. Yeah. I guess what was, so then you're, you graduate and your first job is continuing that. You're like, I've, this is comedy. And then you're, you work at a show that 
I believe a lot of people on staff worked at versions of Daily Show. Uh-huh. Or, and then would go on to work on other late night stuff too, yeah. How did that then also further in your sort of maturation of sort of what you should be or shouldn't be doing? That show was such a, like... A, a, I should a, note, a, it's the Robin, the oh, Robin yes, Thede yeah, show. Uh, yeah, the rundown <laughs> with Robin Thede, um, which I think was, was, was so fascinating because, well, I remember that she would have moments where she was like, I don't want to make jokes about him having Cheeto hands and like, you know like being fat and ugly like if we're gonna make jokes about him like i do want it to be like about what mm -hmm. he's doing and the fact that he's evil but it was also crazy because well i was a writer's assistant on that show and so part of my job was like watching every single other late night show and their jokes reading his tweets also oh reading God. the news and watching the regular news in addition to that there was like just a period of like a year and a half of my life that was just like my brain felt like it was on fire because it was so much of him yeah. and people's takes on him and, and everybody trying to have a different take also um he was tweeting a lot and then people were constantly tweeting and that is is interesting to me like in the era of like political pundancy like mm -hmm. having to beat twitter because mm -hmm. by the end of the day by the end of the day that that draft is done there's probably somebody who's had a joke that went incredibly viral so you yeah. have to have something that's like funny and also different and all that other stuff and and yeah my my brain just felt like it was burning <laughs> Did, so when you got out of that, were you like, I need a, a rest from that? Or you were like, I, or was it more like, I now have a muscle for this? It, I think it was a little bit of both. I was like, I do, have a, I do have a muscle for this. And I think it is important to say things about what's going on politically, obviously. But I think I want to do it differently. Mm -hmm. And I also definitely was like, I think I want to wait my break. Because <laughs> that's a hard arena to be in. I think of you as a political person. Like you like mm. have thoughts and when news is happening, you <laughs> brave. I have thoughts. <laughs> like, but I mean, yeah. like some people are just sort of, yeah. And I'm curious about how you feel like those sides of you relate. Like, and, and if they do, like, I don't necessarily think of you as a political comedian right. necessarily, but like you're a political person, you are a comedian. Mm. Yeah. Your life is sort of communicating both these things. How, yeah. how does it feel for you? Um, hard sometimes <laughs> especially like you know because there are days that where i'm like i want to tell a joke i want to be funny but i feel like i feel so stressed um because i think i you know I, I do care about politics and i because i care about people i think and yeah. i'm very invested in in people i think that's what i've always i've always found funny things that are happening in the world and as a consequence of that i think that's what i've also always found very not stressful, but you know, it's it definitely is mm -hmm. something that I do think about, and um, and I think then yeah, then 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 my comedy is just a, a balancing act of that. How much of that in my jokes do I want to be overt, and then how much of that do I just want to be the the subtext of something or like a quick drive by line in something, and like trying to craft I don't know my jokes and and my voice. Mm -hmm. between those things and you know also between the, the comedy that i do like and i do admire uh yes this is a i'm going to warn you that this question is going to be a hard one. Oh, good oh, <laughs> but i've good. been waiting so long to ask you about it so oh, here boy. we go 
So there was uh, a meme you made for whatever reason that uh, stuck in my head since you've done it, uh, which was Patrick from SpongeBob yelling. And the first panel, he says, what if we took individualism? And in the second panel, it says, and got rid of it in favor of collectivism and concern for our communities and neighbors. So um, I love it. Because I always think about people should talk about things in this term. And so comedy traditionally is an incredibly individualistic yes. art form. Yes. Um, and uh, especially sort of as a performed comedy, you can be like, well, like TV shows, a lot of people working on mm-hmm. it. But like the idea of the stand-up is like, I'm travel alone. I don't know anybody. This yeah. is a solo life. And yeah. then um, how do you reconcile that uh-huh. and or... Do you feel like you or your generation of comedians is trying to pursue a more collectivist vision of comedy? I definitely think I myself am trying to pursue a more collectivist vision of an individualized (laughs) act. And I think that the people who I would call my friends and, you know, peers, coworkers or whatever, like are also trying to do that. Like something that I remember talking, I think it was like Roy with, or, or, or maybe like Janelle James, somebody, mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody who I respect a lot, was like, it's so interesting, like you and your friends, like you go to each other's shows, like you, you, you like, ch- like you check out each other's stuff and not like just for research because you like, like each other <laughs> and, and you like want to see each other's jokes like again. Um, and I, and I, and I, I don't know, I, I think that's true. And, um, you know, there's big people who like, work together either in groups or in and out and like collab with each other on stuff because you know everybody's just so talented in a lot of different ways but I mean one of the reasons why I didn't want to do stand-up was because I was such like an improv Mm. person and I and I was terrified of being on stage alone and terrified of of I I don't really consider myself somebody who like particularly enjoys like spotlight you know And, and I and, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be alone. And I have to be, like, this supremely, like, confident person who believes that, like, everything mm-hmm. that they say is, like, correct. You know, like, I, I have to, like, speak truth to power. Like, here you go. You know, it's like, then then I found out that that wasn't true. And I could just sort of um, be myself. And, I mean, like, I'll, I'll say what I, I think. But, yeah, yeah. It, but it's not necessarily, like, Bible. Um, and, you know. I, I talk to people about my jokes and, and, and about their jokes and, and, and realizing that there is, there is collectivism, there is community. Yeah. It just, it just looks a little bit different. Hmm. I'm going to ask you a, the big wrap up question. It's going to be like three questions in one. You can decide how to answer. Any a of classic them. Jesse, Jesse, David yeah. Fox, oh, three questions in one, three names yes. in one. Ah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, we are now here, but uh, hypothetically in the future, we'll be in the future and we'll look oh, back yes. at this period as the past. Uh-huh. And, you know, if we're lucky, yes. One, I think the first question is sort of what what we think about this time or what do you hope we will remember about this time? And then um, what do you sort of hope? Similarly, where do, where do you hope we're going? Mm. Like for society, for comedy, comedy. I don't care about society. <laughs> yeah, fuck society. No, I care about comedy as a as it relates to society. Um, what if I was like, actually, it doesn't. Um, so edgy, so cool. <laughs> um, I think when we look back at this time, it will be 
I think, a lot of reckoning and upheaval, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen so much craziness happen that, like, anything, like, obviously anything is possible. Like, yeah. like, literally, like, obviously anything is possible. Like, nothing is real. <laughs> like, nothing is real, so you can do anything. We can literally do anything we want. And we can find audiences that will relate to what we're thinking. They are there. Yeah. Like, however big, however small, like, it's been, it's been proven that, they're there um you know like that i think you know i don't know i think about like 85 south show which i think a lot of media publications don't really cover very much but is like that's like the biggest comedy experience i think to like black people in the u.s right now um and so you know there are audiences and they're and they're there Stream Big Mouth on Netflix and Dickinson on Apple TV+. You can listen to IO's podcast, Iconography, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow IO on social media at IODebris. And that's it for another episode of Good One. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. Or tweet at us at Good One Podcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Jason Wallner. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.